welcome everyone to Understanding the I Am That Is You podcast. Yay! Hey everybody, it's your girl Wynne Ruffin, and I pray all is well with everyone, and your hearts and minds are full of love, joy, and compassion for all your sisters and brothers in spirit. And as the authority of our own individual worlds, let us choose, not only during the week of Valentine love, but choose to be loved to ourselves and others, always, never waiting to receive it before we be it. And knowing that our essence is love, let us flow and grow with it, because it is the core of our being. And it not only blesses the world with our loving radiation, but being loved, loving, honors the spirit of God within us, our mighty I am presence. And believe me when I say that being sincere love to ourselves, to others, and loving up on the presence of God within us matters greatly. Amen. Give thanks and praises for love and life, and y'all be loved. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Matthew 20:29-34. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, He said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. 
Yes, replied Jesus, have you never read, from the lips of children and infants you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and, while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven, or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So, they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Matthew 21 Isis and Bill, Chapter 15 From time immemorial, says Mrs. Lydia Maria Child, an emblem has been worshipped in Hindustan as the type of creation, or the origin of life. It is the most common symbol of Shiva, Bala or Mahadeva, and is universally connected with his worship. Shiva was not merely the reproducer of human forms, he represented the fructifying principle, the generative power that pervades the universe. Small images of this emblem carved in ivory, gold, or crystal, are worn as ornaments about the neck. The maternal emblem is likewise a religious type, and worshippers of Vishnu represented on their forehead by a horizontal mark. Is it strange that they regarded with reverence the great mystery of human birth? Were they impure thus to regard it? Or are we impure that we do not so regard it? We have traveled far, and unclean have been the paths, since those old anchorites first spoke of God and the soul in the solemn depths of their first sanctuaries. Let us not smile at their mode of tracing the infinite and incomprehensible cause throughout all the mysteries of nature, lest by so doing we cast the shadow of our own grossness on their patriarchal simplicity. Many are the scholars who have tried, to the best of their ability, to do justice to old India. Colebrook, Sir William Jones, Barthélemy St. Hilaire, Lawson, Weber, Strange, Bernouf, Hardy, and finally Jacqueliot, have all brought forward their testimony to her achievements in legislation, ethics, philosophy, and religion. No people in the world have ever attained to such a grandeur of thought and ideal conceptions of the deity and its offspring, man, as the Sanskrit metaphysicians and theologians. My complaint against many translators and orientalists, says Jacqueliot, while admiring their profound knowledge is, that not having lived in India, they fail in exactness of expression and comprehension of the symbolical sense of poetic chants, prayers, and ceremonies, and thus too often fall into material errors, whether of translation or appreciation. Further, this author who, 
from a long residence in India, and the study of its literature, is better qualified to testify than those who have never been there, tells us that the life of several generations would scarce suffice merely to read the works that ancient India has left us on history, ethics, morale, poetry, philosophy, religion, different sciences, and medicine. And yet, Louis Jacolio was able to judge but by the few fragments, access to which had ever depended on the complacence and friendship of a few Brahmins with whom he succeeded in becoming intimate. Did they show him all their treasures? Did they explain to him all he desired to learn? We doubt it, otherwise he would not himself have judged their religious ceremonies so hastily as he has upon several occasions, merely upon circumstantial evidence. H. P. Blavatsky Still, no traveler has shown himself fairer in the main, or more impartial to India than Jacolio. If he is severe as to her present degradation, he is still severer to those who were the cause of it, the sacerdotal caste of the last few centuries, and his rebuke is proportionate to the intensity of his appreciation of her past grandeur. He shows the sources whence proceeded the revelations of all the ancient creeds, including the inspired books of Moses, and points at India directly as the cradle of humanity, the parent of all other nations, and the hotbed of all the lost arts and sciences of antiquity, for which old India, herself, was lost already in the Sumerian darkness of the archaic ages. To study India, he says, is to trace humanity to its sources. In the same way as modern society jostles antiquity at each step, he adds, as our poets have copied Homer and Virgil, Sophocles and Euripides, Plautus and Terence, as our philosophers have drawn inspiration from Socrates, Pythagoras, Plato and Aristotle, as our historians take Titus Livius, Sallust or Tacitus as models, our orators, Demosthenes or Cicero, our physicians study Hippocrates, and our codes transcribe Justinian, so had antiquity self also an antiquity to study, to imitate, and to copy. What more simple and more logical? Do not people proceed and succeed each other? Does not the knowledge, painfully acquired by one nation, confine itself to its own territory, and die with the generation that produced it? Can there be any absurdity in the suggestion that the India of 6,000 years ago, brilliant, civilized, overflowing with population, impressed upon Egypt, Persia, Judea, Greece, and Rome, a stamp as ineffaceable, impressions as profound, as these last have impressed upon us? It is time to disabuse ourselves of those prejudices which represent the ancients as having almost spontaneously elaborated ideas, philosophic, religious, and moral, the most lofty, those prejudices that in their naive admiration explain all in the domain of science, arts, and letters, by the intuition of some few great men, and in the realm of religion by revelation. We believe that the day is not far off when the opponents of this fine and erudite writer will be silenced by the force of irrefutable evidence. And when facts shall once have corroborated his theories and assertions, what will the world find? That it is to India, the country less explored, and less known than any other, that all the other great nations of the world are indebted for their languages, arts, legislature, and civilization. Its progress, impeded for a few centuries before our era, for, as this writer shows, at the epoch of the great Macedonian conqueror, India had already passed the period of her splendor, was completely stifled in the subsequent ages. But the evidence of her past glories lies in her literature. What people in all the world can boast of such literature, which, were the Sanskrit less difficult, would be more studied than now. Hitherto the general public has had to rely for information on a few scholars who, notwithstanding their great learning and trustworthiness, 
are unequal to the task of translating and commenting upon more than a few books out of the almost countless number that, notwithstanding the vandalism of the missionaries, are still left to swell the mighty volume of Sanskrit literature. And to do even so much as the labor of a European's lifetime. Hence, people judge hastily, and often make the most ridiculous blunders. H.P. Blavatsky The I Am Discourses, Volume 14 When you take your stand that the evil of mankind's generation shall not be any authority in your world, shall not prevent heaven on earth, shall not enslave life, shall not desecrate what is of God, shall not ruin your nation, shall not desecrate or destroy mankind, you will release sacred fire that consumes the evil. You have the authority. You have the power. We are ready to release all the sacred fire necessary and forever stop the manifestations of that which produces such distress. My dear ones, in this great God-given authority of life which abides within your life, it's the same life as our life. It's the life that has created this system and the manifestations of infinity, and that life uses only the sacred fire to produce manifestation. You are a part of that life. The sacred fire comes from our octave into you. You are the authority, and you have the right to use it. Therefore, from tonight I hope you will reach up and accept your mastery. Applause. Thank you so much. The more evil forces threaten to destroy conditions in this world, the more they brag about wiping out everything, the more you must call for the sacred fire manifestations that put an end to all evil. There is no battle from our side, and when you take this fierce, determined stand, there is no battle in you. When you say, you demand the Elohim mastery power, the Elohim mastery control, the Elohim sacred fire here, you leave it with us as to what to select. We'll always select the right activity of the sacred fire. We will always produce the manifestation that is the next most important thing that you require, and we will always release the power that does away with the evil. So, when you exert the authority of your own life stream, when you design that pattern of perfection you want, and with all your heart, all your feeling you love it, then with all the determination of your being, you call, you just give no quarter to appearances, you call your beloved I am presence first and then to us, for the Elohim mastery of all in this world to blaze the sacred fire that produces this perfection. Then you do not fight evil, you do not resist evil. There is no battle. The flames comes in, and it's all there is. Beloved Elohim Orion You know, the sun doesn't battle every morning when it arises, does it? Does it battle the evil on this planet that mankind has generated? It stays in its own realm of mastery. It pours all its blessings to good and evil alike, but if you get hot enough and uncomfortable enough, you will either purify yourselves enough, so the sacred fire from the physical sun is comfortable instead of uncomfortable, and that's all it amounts to. It sounds easy, doesn't it? And it is. Do you know why? Isn't it much easier to love perfection from our octave and contemplate it filling this world, than it is to contemplate what mankind has already generated and is planning, to yet increase destruction? There is no effort in contemplating the perfection in our world. All the effort is in the human discord, past and present. And when you rise up and you issue your command at night before you go to sleep, and you issue it in the morning when you awaken, there shall not be anything in your being and world but the seven mighty Elohim mastery of the sacred fire 
and its boundless beauty and perfection is your world for eternity. Give us the opportunity to bring into your world blessings you have never yet had, but which will serve you well and will be of great benefit to others, as you hold them in outer use, to fulfill the great divine plan. Beloved Aloha Marayan,